Well, we spend one pair of lockpicks. 12 HP each. Okay. <laughs> a fine silken rope. <laughs> a little bit of dignity. You did have to flirt with them after all. All right, and now let's go back and tally up. Live from the Dangerous Deserted Island in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 309 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to run and play survival games. But first, the party checks on the help in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Judge Dredd is the law in the Character Creation Forge. He's also the bottom half of Sylvester Stallone's face. That's all I know about the character, or remember about the character, I guess. I thought the world was called 2099 AD, but I think that's actually a Marvel continuity. <laughs> so it's 2000 AD. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, in the far future. In it, well, the year 2000. I, fun fact about 2000 AD is it is always set 122 years in the future. So it started in the 70s, and it is the, the canon has progressed 50 years. Judge Dredd is now like 80-something years old. Wait, so it's just a weird coincidence that that's exactly 100 years from now? No, 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 no. It's 122 years in the future of whatever year it is. So its current continuity is set in like uh, 2144. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. It is, yeah. And the, the continuity progresses one year at a time. Like a calendar year on Earth, you know, as the comic book publishes, is a calendar year within the setting. Huh, okay. Like a season of Friends, I guess. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, except that it lasted 50 years, and now Judge Dredd, who started in his 30s, so did in friends. his 80s. <laughs> well, right, yeah. <laughs> that David Schwimmer has not aged well. <laughs> but it just won't stop. Oh dear. Okay, speaking of it just won't stop, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Fairhaven, the peaceful capital of Ondair, the party is hunting down quarry mine seeds. So the Tharashk Inquisitives, the party sent to investigate the abandoned Temple of the Silver Flame, have returned with no memory of their assignment. Mm, the party sends them back out, but this time, they tail them. They reach the temple grounds in the Marble Hills district, but skirt around it like they don't see the rusted gate just hanging slightly open. Bramble walks up to one of them, gets his attention, and points directly at the temple, but it doesn't seem to hold the man's interest. His eyes just slide away, and he fixates on the other side of the street, as does his companion. So the party just gives up on the Inquisitives, and they quietly enter the temple themselves. Inside, it looks destroyed and looted. There's dust covering every surface, and it looks like it's been untouched for decades. That alone seems odd to them, since they know that the temple was abandoned 80 years ago during the last war, and it seems impossible that no one would have claimed it for their own in all of that time. But upon a very close inspection, they notice just the slightest haze around everything that they see, like a heat shimmer. So they head up the western bell tower to get a better view. At the top, high above the noise of the street, they can see down into the grassy, unkempt courtyard. They also spy the main steeple of the church and the eastern bell tower. After a few minutes up there, 
Lenore, the rogue, notices that the giant bell that they're standing next to is vibrating ever so slightly in the wind. The bell on the other tower, though, as she can see, is not. Warden then scans the skies for birds and sees their flight patterns are being disturbed by something he can't see. The party surmises that some object, invisible as it is, must be blocking the wind. So Warden picks up a few loose flagstones and tosses them down into the courtyard. Several of them shatter on the ground, but one ricochets off of something, indeed invisible. And as they peer closely at the space in midair, searching for something hidden that they know must be there, a crack appears in the sky. Its jagged course splits the scene like a lightning bolt, and then it spreads, and the courtyard shatters like glass. In its place stands the exact same courtyard, but a 200-foot-tall ovoid monument is now visible, one of the Riedrin Hanbalani Altas. The illusion is broken, and Vesikad can hear buzzing in his head again. And we'll find out what happens next. Next week. So this week, we are talking about survival games. Shane, I am shocked that in 300 episodes we haven't talked about survival games. Is it because we were avoiding it? Did it feel like a slog? Did it feel like it'd be too much paperwork? <laughs> All of those things. I think it's because uh, our general recommendation on survival games is don't do them. So it seemed like a short episode. Yeah, like RPGs are not the medium for that, right? <laughs> exactly. Not, not tabletop RPGs, right? Like, And this is this is where this came in, I think, this time is because like the video game discourse a week or two ago when we planned this episode was centering around survival mechanics in games um, and how that works in video games. And... It got me thinking about like, oh, there are many core mechanics. Why don't those work in tabletop RPGs? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for like the four of our listeners who don't play video games and also me, can you like do a quick summary of the discourse? Uh, I, yeah, so it was, I think it was centering around specifically uh, item durability. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, as an old Diablo player, I know what you're talking about. Right, and the, the 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 central argument was basically item durability adds a survival element to a lot of games that don't need it, uh, and never has there been a game where item durability felt good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the counter-argument was Zelda Breath of the Wild exists, and I don't know if that's valid or not. But anyway, uh, it, it just got me thinking about like kind of the broader mechanics that uh, have to interact within a survival game, because on its own right item durability take it or leave it but when it's one of a series of systems that are degrading your capabilities over time right and it's another variable that you have to manage within the video game like then it starts to add together into a survival game rather than a survival element and it can work elegantly it can work poorly in ttrpgs it often seems poorly so Mm. we set about how can we maybe fix that how can we learn some lessons from video games and and maybe set about fixing that in tabletop games I mean, obviously, you just emulate the best, most classic survival game of all time, Gauntlet, where <laughs> where the longer you sit around waiting for something to happen, the sooner you die. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think uh, I think I would use like Valheim as probably my my modern touchstone. 
Uh, games like RimWorld are also kind of fair. Uh, but did those have the existential dread of hearing your your uh, heartbeat count down to zero <laughs> because you couldn't get an apple? Uh, not not quite. Okay, uh, okay. That's that's a don't starve, uh, which is actually the first game that our our gaming group uh, played together. Like the first video game that we all played together uh, was Don't Starve Together, which is basically like you are transported to a surreal magical world and you have to run around collecting resources building a base trying to survive managing all the systems killing all the enemies and you know generally uh trying to survive as long as you can all right so to segue a bit from video games then what rpgs out there right now do survival really well so the short answer is torchbearer uh it's a list of one and the long answer is Actually, none of them, because even Torchbearer is kind of overbearing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you actually want to play a survival game, and like this is, this is a problem in need of a solution, because no matter how many times you tell groups that there probably isn't an ideal way to play a survival game in, t- in tabletop RPGs right now, people are still going to want to do it, at least for a short time, right? Like we still we still do it sometimes. We were like, let's play Dark Sun and there'll be exhaustion mechanics. Yeah, it was fun for one session. <laughs> <laughs> and we play and we played it for fifteen. <laughs> yeah, like and then we overcame the exhaustion mechanics and moved on with our lives. Cause anyway. Uh so I guess the the natural starting place here is sort of what makes a survival genre in video games and how does it work well there? And I think there are kind of two core elements that that lead it off one is exploration so there's always that question of what's out there what feast or folly awaits what beauty or horror might you behold just beyond the uh the fog of war on the map or just beyond your draw distance right like what could be out there is always kind of the perpetual question and then the thing that i always think about uh with survival video games and the thing that sort of sets them apart from RPGs is all of the subsystems that the computer tracks for you automatically. So whether that is your amount of exhaustion or how much water you've had to drink or how much food you've eaten recently, or like we said before, item durability, uh, the the temperature, ambient temperature, the weather, um, like all all of those things, like inventory management, right? Um, Carrying capacity, encumbrance, all of that. Yeah, and I think those are sort of the the two core pillars for the genre. Like, if you don't have those two things, you're probably not playing survival. Uh, Everything else you can kind of do well or do poorly, and that's, in in my opinion, kind of makes or breaks your game. But to be in the genre, you have to explore and you have to have systems to manage. And those systems are generally the reason you're exploring is because you're searching for solutions, right? All right, but like what other maybe tentpoles might you find in a survival game? So I think base building is is pretty key. Um, uh, whether that is like a physical like location or that is sort of your capability of like <laughs> constructing on the fly and and on the move, right? But the idea that you gain mastery over the elements when you're in your domain, right? So you can create safety for yourself. Um, you can create relief for yourself from the core systems, right? You can get a break. Um, a lot of times, like in some of the best survival games, that also includes like a creative element. Um, like, I, I mean, I spent hours in Valheim, which is a, you know, a pretty 
pretty well received survival game just collecting resources and building bases like to make cool viking towns <laughs> like you know like it, it didn't matter I, I wasn't trying to accomplish any achievements anymore i was just having fun building right so, which is a which is kind of a whole subgenre then and then i think you mentioned this earlier inventory management is also a very common theme of survival so you know usually you're having to collect resources in order to refine them so that you can build better equipment so that you can overcome bigger challenges right and it becomes this question of like how much can you carry do you bring armor or do you bring a bag for extra storage do you bring a weapon or do you bring tools like how many of your item slots or encumbrance points or whatever are you dedicating to your defense versus your convenience versus like the key items you need in order to you know move through the world and all all the ways that you engage with these different subsystems or base building or, or what have you are basically variations on problem solving it strikes me that this is in many ways very different from what we might consider more traditional gaming like first person shooters and things like that where it's more about action and movement and reflexes and this is much more about uh strategy and maybe a little bit of the grind and some luck because i think the core question is always how do you overcome this challenge right you start out starving how do you solve that now that you're not starving, you're exhausted. How do you solve that? Well, now daylight is fading and it's starting to get cold because it's nighttime. How do you solve for that, right? Like, how do you keep overcoming these problems? And that leads to the method of advancement in most of these games, right? Like, you start out starving, but you don't stay that way. Well, if you, you either die or you don't stay that way and, and you advance. Yeah, and as you advance, you grow... Like you gain experience, you grow more powerful, like your old challenges become trivial, right? Food is just a thing that you've solved by learning to farm, right? But new challenges arise, like now there's a new boss that threatens you, or there's a new resource that is riskier for you to acquire that you need to, you know, maybe it's in, a, in an area that requires you to have resistance to fire, right? It's you have to go figure out how do I get resistance to fire so I can go into the lava lands. And I think this should be starting to sound very familiar to traditional RPG players, right? Like there, there is an element of the success treadmill where, you know, you start at like level zero, level one or whatever, and you're either going to die and make a new character or you're going to survive and get better. And then the problems of level one don't affect you anymore. Yeah. Eventually, like you stop worrying about goblins, right? Like bandits on the road are no longer a concern for 15th level characters right like those are a problem for third level characters yeah or people playing video games when you meet 17th level bandits on the road because <laughs> <laughs> it scales right uh and then i think the the last element of survival games that is is probably the hardest to design uh is the 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 tendency for like emergent stories right uh which is a very core experience of tabletop rpgs but it's like you know what events transpired during this playthrough that made it unique that made it memorable right how do those events connect to each other and and share a theme um like what mark did you leave on the world as you were going on this survival journey and i could i could share uh an example from valheim because we as a group played a lot of hours in that uh 
so we had uh so so valheim is a is a viking themed game right you're like viking survivalists uh and we had to go collect a bunch of iron from a faraway swamp uh normally you can just teleport uh once you you unlock that technology but uh when it's iron it can't go through the teleporter so you have to put it on a boat and sail it home and so right nothing uh, dead will go yeah obviously <laughs> right <laughs> so so jim and i uh get in the boat uh, everyone else having raided the swamp for iron decides to log off for the night he and i are like that's cool we'll sail it back to town start it smelting and then we'll log off so this is midnight we're like oh it'll take us like 20 minutes to sail it back it's fine as we're sailing back we decide hey there's this unexplored part of the map up here maybe we should just take like a detour take the long way home and just see what's up there so we can get some scouting in on our way two hours one boat <laughs> <laughs> everyone's or and and uh several respawns later <laughs> we we found that we had taken over an hour detour um into some very high level lands that promptly killed us we then had to get the equipment for a new boat, like get the parts for a new boat build a boat sail back out there collect our stuff off our old crashed boat collect the pieces of that boat then sail back home we went on an odyssey it took us hours we log and then the problem is on a boat you can't log off in the middle of it because you might it, there was a glitch in the game at the time you might not respawn on the boat when you come back into the game the boat might have moved and if that happens you fall in the water and drown i so, kind of love that yeah so we were like stuck we had to get this done before we could go to bed and uh and and that became like jim and shane's odyssey it was a very fun night that was completely accidental by going, hey, let's see what happens if we just go north. Like, let's see where that channel leads. Were your wives still waiting for you when you finished? Absolutely not. <laughs> not a true odyssey. All right. <laughs> no. Well, they, they were waiting in bed, <laughs> angry that we were up until 2 o'clock sailing around <laughs> fake iron through a Viking. Anyway. All right, so all of these elements are going to be familiar to tabletop players, but why is it that they don't translate? So you hit on this. Uh, all of these systems that you want to manage require bookkeeping, right? <sighs> Easy to do 10 systems when you have a CPU tracking it for you in real time. Very terrible to do it round by round on a physical character sheet where you have to write it in with a pencil and scratch a bunch of stuff off. Yeah, I mean, you see this every time that... There's like a D&D, &D, for example, video game, right? Like we uh, did an actual play with um, Sunless Citadel. And one of our comments about it was, you know, we didn't want it to be like a Baldur's Gate style where you're walking around and playing four different characters because that's too complicated to manage all those sheets, right? Mm -hmm. But like the video game does that. And I remember playing Neverwinter Nights and being like, oh, there's, you know, 10 people in this server and everyone's casting spells or making attacks or whatever. And like, it's pretty seamless because the computer is just doing all the math for us. But can you right. imagine doing this at a table? No, I would never do that. I would. Yeah, no, it would be miserable. So's most books bookkeeping for survival games. Right, exactly. And then like, you know, it's one thing to track ammunition. I think that's like the classic example, right? Like track your food, track your ammunition. When you run out, you're in trouble. But like, mm -hmm. When you start talking about exhaustion, you start talking about dehydration, you talk about like these like true survival mechanics where you're expecting a death spiral that degrades your abilities over time. Like it's not just 
ticking a box on a sheet anymore. Then it's also understanding, okay, well, I've ticked three boxes. What does that mean for these four derivative skills? Like, is that a penalty to damage and lowering my defenses? Is that less health? Is that less health recovery, right? Like, you have to keep track of all that stuff. Like, even if you aren't writing it down, there's a mental load that's associated with that that is just part of the computer's job. <laughs> Look, my favorite survival game of all time is, I think, everyone's Oregon Trail. And, you know, in your head, you're tracking five things is it right oxen axles food medicine bullets maybe that's about it but like mm -hmm. the computer's still doing all of that i don't need to mark off axles right <laughs> <laughs> and like that that is the maximum mental load because like <laughs> the stress of like worrying about that stuff and making the gamble about crossing the river or like fording the river is is the game right like it is the stress survival <laughs> Also, obviously, Oregon Trail 2, best survival game of all time. Just improved on the original. Just straight improved the original. You're not playing on an Apple IIe. Here's my argument. You could use a mouse. <laughs> For lazy people. Hunting was worse, though. I'll, I'll say that. No, no you're skill, right. No, hill, no skill in hunting in Oregon Trail 2. Another thing that uh, tabletop RPGs struggle with is random failure is a lousy option as a penalty in in tabletop games right and there's two ways that this happens one is like it invalidates your choice so like you made a sound strategic move you rolled dice to determine the outcome and the dice dictated that you were unsuccessful right so like you spotted the bear you recognized you want to avoid attracting its attention so you decide to stealth away from it but you fail the stealth roll and now the bear murders the party right classic survival fail right except you did the right thing you didn't take a risk and yet you failed and now that's unsatisfying because you're dead so is the issue here that the social contract at an rpg game table usually doesn't involve respawns that is definitely part of it uh yeah i mean we can we can talk about that a, a little bit but like yes there's very much that that element of like because you don't respawn in a tabletop game that's the end of your story right and so building a cohesive narrative around that becomes very difficult there's an expectation that like tabletop rpg characters either have a funnel or they survive mm -hmm. right and so like the survival tests cannot hinge on random dice just getting you killed right like good decisions that produce bad outcomes are doubly unsatisfying when that's the whole game. Right. Like they're supposed to be people who mean something and do things. Yeah, exactly. Like the, 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 the question of Oregon trail, right. Was not like the, the inter-party dynamics of the, the four people that are named in the wagon and how these four people overcome, right. Cause it isn't a character driven game. The question is, can you as the player make the right decisions overcome the random roles and get to the end right tabletop games aren't about getting to the end they're about the story that you tell along the way and so if random roles prevent you from getting to the end when it doesn't really make a ton of sense in the story because it doesn't feel justified to fail you've got a problem uh, and then you also run into death spirals which we've covered in an entire episode but most survival games have systems or penalties where 
as soon as you begin taking a penalty, you now take more penalties, and it, of course, spirals until you die very very quickly. Right, and when the name of the game is live, literally, <laughs> then having increasing penalties that make it harder to succeed at anything just strips you of your agency, right? So now you have less and less impact on the outcomes, and you're just sliding towards death without any control. That's how I always feel in Zelda games when I take that first bit of damage and now my sword doesn't shoot anymore. I'm just like, (laughs) I may as well be dead. What's the point? Why even do this? (laughs) Gotta find me a fairy. And I think there's a difference here, like, again, between media, where in a video game, there's the element of, like, control and skill and, you know, like, there's a at least some element of, like, manual dexterity in, in most of these games. And so that can overcome the penalty, right? But in a tabletop RPG, you don't get that, right? If your resolution mechanic is dice and your death spiral affects dice, well, what can I do? Mm -hmm. I I just don't have agency anymore, right? I'm not playing on hard mode. I'm not playing. Right, there's no way to leverage skill other than, I mean, there isn't, other than the choices you make. You can't, like, roll the dice better. Right, exactly. Then the other piece of this that I think is important is that players don't advance in tabletop games right we talk about our characters getting better but we don't talk about our players getting better like in a survival game when you die like that's usually like some sort of setback for a character you respawn like even in hardcore games like you know don't starve like you die it's game over and then you restart from zero on a fresh procedurally generated map and you try again right right? you play the game again yeah you just play the game again but you get to repeat it and you as a player learn from that experience right i failed but now i get to replay with that knowledge that i've gained in a tabletop rpg those rules are laid out for you up front in the book you have system mastery from the beginning you might learn a little bit about how they interact and there might be some like you know theoretical to applied knowledge but at the end of the day like you pretty quickly like you have system mastery you don't you don't grow as a player over time by repeating the same things like the same challenge three times you don't get better at it Right, except Planescape Torment, and that's literally it. <laughs> Which, like, I think is basically designed around this premise, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, that's designed to fail and try again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's the whole point of Planescape, and, you know, but that's a, that's not a survival game, right? That's a, right, that's it's, a, a it's story a, it's mechanic. It's a player learning right. game wrapped in a story. <laughs> right. And, and so what that means, though, is, like, even if you start the game over again, right, your fourth run even though you start with the same resources, is always easier than your first run because you know more going in, right? And that, that's just the way getting better at games works. Like, you know, that's like the whole point of a Souls-like game, right? Because Elden Ring just came out. Um, you, the whole point is to go face a boss, die, go face a boss, die again, go face a boss, learn his first attack pattern, overcome that, die to a second attack pattern, right? And like gradually, like through repetition, you start to get better at the game and learn how it works and then you move on. You can't do that in a tabletop RPG. <laughs> like it just that isn't fun to just. I mean, keep yeah, repeating you can, but yeah, it's boring. Well, yeah, but but if if your decision isn't changing, right? If you can make the right decision from the first try, then you're not growing as a player, right? You're just doing the same thing and hoping the dice turn out different. Uh, another thing that comes up a lot in TT or in tabletop games is the like the gritty realism rules, right? Like the idea that you're injured so it costs you more downtime to heal or like damage is doubled or spell slots recover more slowly 
and it takes the sense of time to make it more realistic. Boy, do I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> because the urgency is artificial, right? Like, the story goes at the pace of the players. <laughs> it's a story about the players, right? It takes you the same amount of time to resolve uh, one night of sleep or a week of resting and recuperating at a game table, which is to say, we agree to do that and we stop. So uh, it doesn't really work for survival. All it, all it does is just kind of like grind your story to a halt is like you have to wait around for one person. I hope you saved up a week's worth of food because I'm still counting that <laughs> as you sit there and recuperate. Well, I mean, the alternative is you go out and do stuff. My character is sitting at home doing nothing and you get to keep playing you know, game rounds, right? Like your character gets to do stuff. I'm stuck at home. Why am I at the table? I'll just go make a beer run. Tell me when I get back, let me play again. Right. I mean, we've talked before about um, skipping ahead to the action. So mm -hmm. everybody does that during the rest or recuperate. So all you're going to be doing is skipping different amounts of narrative time. I think this is improving in some ways, but it's not quite there yet. But base building is never quite satisfying in tabletop games, right? Like, it, it, it tends to run in either two camps. One, it's either, like, too mechanical, and so it lacks the creative inspiration and ownership of, like, you know, seeing it come to life and building it yourself. Like, a, you know, taking a pile of Lego bricks and building up a castle. Or it's got too much DM fiat, and the mechanical rewards for it seem too limited to really overinvest in it, right? It just stays too narrative. All right. So if you're playing tabletop and you're still dead set on playing survival games, what are some ways to do it better? So this is why Torchbearer is the recommended system and the only recommended system because it doesn't bother with survival systems. <laughs> it recognizes that they're just annoying bookkeeping and so if you need them, you aggregate them. And Torchbearer uses a mechanic called grind. And basically that represents like the more time you spend adventuring, the more difficult it is to keep adventuring, right? And so that that's what, what you manage over time. So you got to reset that grind over time. And that's what you're, you know, focused on. I think that's the best way to do it because it's simple and it's one thing to track and it's, it keeps it narrative. I like that they lampshaded it, right? Like, oh, what is this? It's it's grinding. You're you're grinding. You're just walking around, trying to get stuff, trying to level up, trying to get, trying to make bigger numbers. Well, I think it's the opposite. I think it's actually it's grinding you to dust. <laughs> <laughs> the the act of existing. <laughs> I mean, yes, my will to play this game certainly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I think every time we come up against how to handle complicated inventory management for example in tabletop the answer always ends up being do it until you don't find it fun anymore which honestly for most groups is going to be a very short amount of time <laughs> right so like you can just get rid of it entirely or again you know play for play with it for a little while and then if you still want to play a gritty type of game you you just fade it into the background right now mechanically you stop engaging with that subsystem and don't use it anymore or you don't count errors or whatever your characters in the game can still be counting all that stuff and paying attention to it and going to get the water and building the fires and you know maintaining the the parapets or whatever they, they need to do 
right? But like that just happens off camera. You want to quickly get to the point where inventory is more a question of how it's applied than it is a question of what's in it, right? And I, I think like Blades in the Dark does this really well when it just you just choose load, right? <laughs> and then you figure out what's in your inventory. And, and right? not even ahead of time. Oh, well, right, yeah. But at the moment where it's important, you choose load and then and then uh, you decide what's in your inventory later. And And then it becomes a question of like, how can I use my inventory most effective, right? That's the problem I'm solving. So like I have a problem. Is there something in my inventory or something that could potentially be in my inventory that will give me a creative solution to this problem? And so like, I mean, an example from our own actual play, right? Is like, I wanted to harness gust of wind to create a sail. I didn't have a sail, but I did have a tent. So like, you know, in a video game, I probably cannot convert a tent into a sail. There's probably not a mechanic for that. It isn't programmed into the game. Right. It needs to be something that someone else has already thought of before. You cannot exactly. have an original idea and leverage it in a video game. Exactly. Exactly. In a tabletop RPG, you absolutely can. So lean into that, right? Like give those wins, grant those wins, make that the focus. Is like either you plan and prepare expertly or you, um, or you use the things in your inventory creatively. And that gets you through your problems. That's how you overcome these survival challenges. And then you can lean on your skills to sort of anticipate what problems that could arise, you know, as you're venturing forth to scale the mountain and find, you know, some gold. Um, what could go wrong on a mountain? What should I bring? What should I plan for? Uh, you know, that's that's what a uh, survival check is for or a nature check, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the... The way that a video game determines what is over the next hill is either it's been pre-programmed and it's always the same or it's procedurally generated for the most part, right? But in this game, you have an adjudicator who can actually just decide what is going to be over there that will be the most interesting given the party, the party's makeup, who's here at this session today, what your skills are and what you have on hand and what you brought with you and how much you're annoying me right now. Yeah, exactly. And like that's a... Uh man there is that tendency to just roll on tables right mm -hmm. and like if you just have the perfect set of tables you can like simulate procedural generation and the world will stand on its own like no don't do that reduce the randomness embrace the cause and effect like so, you know sometimes you just need something to do you don't know where to go like fine use a table or pick from a table that's great but like you can just choose the interesting events and then depending on what happens apply the next logical outcome right so if you go overhunt deer for, you know, multiple months, then there's probably going to be a shortage in winter, right? If you raid goblin villages for supplies, they're probably going to counterattack you and you're going to deal with that. Like if you clear cut a forest to set up your camp, then you're going to end up with a bunch of timber. Maybe that's a resource you could trade to it on uh, to a passing caravan. But none of that has to be random, right? Like all of that can just be you made a decision. Here's a natural outflow of that decision. Now we've created narrative. Right. It's also a way to circumvent the death spiral, right, where you can leverage penalties and then sort of see where the dice land. And from there, you can then adjudicate future penalties, right? You don't always need to apply the same ones all the time. If the players seem like they're having a really bad, boring time, then like lighten it up a little bit. And if they're breezing through it, then make it harder, right? Because you're looking for that sweet spot of feeling like you might die at any moment, but like probably not dying at any given moment or at least right. not all of us <laughs> yeah i think that's important too is like you need to give them moments of reprieve 
right? When they have a win, when they do get ahead, like let the players have a round of like, cool, we could do the things we want to do, right? We don't have to be obligate survivalists for a hot second. The problems will come back soon enough. And then like conversely, like, hey, if they're getting battered and beaten, like, you know, in a storm or like winter is just absolutely kicking their ass because they weren't sufficiently prepared, like you don't need to throw a frost giant attack at them as well. <laughs> like, you know, like it's okay for them to just suffer in the one challenge that they're failing at, you know, and not make it all worse. Yeah. I think it's, it's useful to sort of go back to some of, some of the like original or like semi original fiction for survival. Like when you look at all of these subsystems and you look at the challenges that are usually put in front of players, I immediately think of like Robinson Crusoe, you know, like uh, one, one, one person alone with nothing. And like, what happens at the beginning of the story? Uh, trying to find immediately I have some shelter, something to wear and something to eat. Right. But like after a while, he's like <laughs> building rope swings and like, you know, introducing his manservant, you know, right. like <laughs> these were not day one problems. Right. It's like uh, the Martian, you know, like, first of all, pass your suit. <laughs> Second of all, figure out how to get food <laughs> or like the hatchet. Right. It's like, right, first yeah, of yeah. all, survive this plane crash. Second of <laughs> right. all, make a fire. <laughs> eat the grubs. Yeah. All right. Eat the grubs. Sure. Um, But like, go go back to like what makes those interesting and and fun. And it's that things were dire and then you overcame them and then they weren't dire anymore or they were dire in different ways or the challenges were different or you were solving for different problems. I, I like that. And I think it's important to to note like in a lot of these challenges, right, the key resource is actually time, right? It's a question of if I spend my time doing X, I therefore cannot spend my time doing Y, Right. So I need to prioritize correctly of like, what is my most burning challenge? And and you just want to make sure there's enough challenges to go around that. Like, there's always a question of, are we prioritizing the right thing? And we roll dice to find out. I do think it's important to think about how you're rolling dice and how you're introducing the randomness of the dice into your game. Because I, I go back to losing a survival game because of a random dice roll on an outcome from the correct strategy sucks so right when you weren't trying to gamble exactly exactly so think of it as like if you are spending resources to secure the outcome that probably just happens right like you don't need to roll to find out if like your tent is going to protect you from the elements tonight right if you're doing something risky to try and secure a bigger reward, like maybe, for example, instead of pitching a tent, you rough it out, you know, in the cold, well, maybe then you have to roll to find out if something negative happens to you, right? And, and maybe there's a reason that you would do that, and that's the risk that you're taking. When you acknowledge the risk, then we roll dice to find out. But, like, I think it's just it's just important to, like, give them enough narrative control that, like, their decisions always have weight, because otherwise, the dice always have the weight, and the decision is going to be arbitrary if you can just roll your way out of it or roll your way into trouble. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a counterintuitive approach, because when you're playing a survival game, usually people think, oh, this is going to be 
hard, like quote unquote hard, whatever that is. Like it's going to be difficult. The challenges are going to be high and the chances of survival are, you know, going to be low. But in order to like actually pull off that narrative, what you want to do is in some ways make it what we might call easier or minimize, you know, minimizing the randomness. So like if we were playing a heist game and a player said, if we take twice as long to case the joint, can we just succeed without making a stealth roll? I would say, no, of course not. What are you talking about? Like you're going to, you're going to roll or you're going to, you're going to take some sort of risk because like you're in a town and there's like guards and like if you go to jail i don't care because like that's an interesting part of the story or whatever right Right. like there's a net in that kind of game and it's supposed to be heroic and fun and swashbuckling and whatever in a survival game though like the the fiction tells you there's no net and one failed roll and you die so you you do want to sort of like put those guardrails on if they're like okay if i take twice as long to like carefully build this shelter is there no chance that it'll collapse on me and kill me in the middle of the night? And you can be like, yeah, <laughs> totally, absolutely. You spend twice as long doing it, which means you can't go forage or whatever. But right. yeah, I can give you that, no problem, if that's where you want to spend your resources. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then the other way to resolve that, right, is like you can assume that the players are successful and then roll for the cost, right? So yes, you definitely are able to build a shelter that is secure and safe and won't fall on you in the middle of the night, Let's roll to see how long it takes you, mm-hmm. right? How much of your time resource are you spending? Or, you know, you definitely succeed at hunting because you're, you know, you have set up camp in a near a game trail. That was part of why you set camp here. But let's find out how much food you find or let's find out how many arrows it takes you to secure, you know, food for the day, right? Like you can introduce the randomness in a way that doesn't invalidate the choice. It just determines the cost yeah you kind of need to flip the goals here right like the the thing that the players are asking for isn't that we want to succeed at building shelter it's we want we want to not spend resources right because that's that's really the limiting factor right whereas again to go back to the heist analogy it would not be fun to say hey no matter what happens you steal the jewels but we're rolling we're rolling to see like you know how many resources you spend in order to steal the jewels right <laughs> well we spend one pair of lock, lock picks <laughs> right uh 12 hp each okay <laughs> a fine silken rope <laughs> a little bit of dignity you did have to flirt with them after all all right and now let's go back and tally up um i guess as we we kind of wrap this up right like i i think I think the other sort of way to introduce this is to introduce survival elements, but don't make that the sole focus, right? Like there aren't games that do this exceptionally well, but you could definitely introduce it as part of an arc or an interlude or, you know, a framing device or, you know, some, some type of flashback story where you can introduce the question of survival, but it doesn't have to become the entire game and you don't need dozens of mechanics in order to bring it to life the way it works in a video game because again the purpose of a survival video game is ultimately skill and the purpose of a role-playing game tends to be more about the emergent story and how the you know actions of the of the players impact their characters right and how their characters interact and overcome the world and 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 what they learn and how they change along the way yeah like don't play your survival on a desert island minigame play characters who got marooned and who need to get off this island. 
All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That is the sound of a hastily constructed shelter falling on me in the middle of the night, as usual. I think my coconut telegraph is ringing, so why don't we... How did, how did we not reference Gilligan's Island? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we answer the coconut telegraph, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill on gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we have Judge Dredd. Uh, for research, Shane, did you go watch the movie from the 90s? It feels like it. I watched the Sylvester Stallone movie in 1995 when I was uh, nine years old. <laughs> I watched it in the theater. I think it might have been the first R-rated movie I watched. Uh, I was just going to say, how did you even watch it? I went with my neighbors who were uh, who were English. So It was yeah, also the 90s, so like nobody cared. Standards. Yeah. 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 Uh, was Highlander rated R? The original? Well, I like believe Highlander so. I think it would have been Highlander 2. Oh, well, that was... No, let's not talk about that movie. Okay. Well, that would, that might have been my first R-rated movie, but it, I think that would have been about a similar time. Uh, anyway, uh, so yes, I saw that. And then I I've watched the Carl Urban one, um, like, on streaming at some point, but uh, maybe on an airplane. That makes you a Judge Dredd aficionado. Tell us about the judge. Okay. Judge Dredd is a street judge in Mega City 1 in the uh, dystopian future of the 2000 AD universe. He, uh, you know, you might note him for his large eagle pauldrons, his uh, helmet that half covers his face, and you can only see his chin because, as you know, justice in a dystopian future is faceless and and, and anonymous. It's a white dude, though. <laughs> That's actually, I learned from Wikipedia. That's actually interesting. Uh, he was meant to be racially ambiguous in the comic because it wasn't printed in color originally. Oh. Um, and so the the artist actually drew him with like bigger lips so that he would be a little more like he would have, you know, I, I guess that was. He, he, yeah, he could read differently, but then movie casting. Well, what that. ended up happening is they, they didn't actually tell that to all the other artists who worked on the character and so he <laughs> over time kind of evolved into just a white dude yeah and then obviously became sliced alone who is you know, <laughs> the whitest of dudes yeah slab of meat <laughs> but yeah so uh it, it, interesting i i think the uh the original artist was um latinx so like it's kind of a, an interesting take um racially ambiguous futures that's that's what's coming Right. <laughs> uh, notably, he is armed with his pistol, Lawgiver, and his motorcycle, Lawmaster. Uh, and he is judge, jury, and executioner. The other thing is Lawgiver has multiple, uh, like, he could choose multiple types of shots with it. It's, like, gene-coded to his hand or whatever, so, like, only he can use it. Only judges can use them, and they, they have different types of ammunition, and they do fancy things. Right, right. Darkwing Duck. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> All right, so what's the build? The build is Battlemaster Fighter 13, Oath of Conquest Paladin 7. I figured Oath of Conquest was going to show up in here. It just feels right, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> so we'll start with Battlemaster. Uh, and at first level, you will take the fighting style 
Superior technique. Thank you, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, for finally <laughs> letting anyone be a Battlemaster. <laughs> including Battlemasters. Uh, so you can learn a Battlemaster technique for this and uh, gain a D6 superiority die in the process. Uh, and then you'll also get Second Win, which lets you regain hit points as a bonus action. Uh, at level 2, you'll get Action Surge. And then, of course, what we're here for at level 3, Battlemaster... Uh, you start with Artisan's Tool Proficiency, and then ultimately you will know eight maneuvers, and you will have six total superiority dice, which uh, at level 10 will become D10s, including the one you get from Superior Technique, which is a D6 until that point. Just a weird quirk of the rules. <laughs> like, that's what we're here for. Weird quirks of the rules. Right. All right, so which maneuvers would you pick? Okay, so let's talk about what Lawgiver can do. So it has six types of ammunition, standard execution, which is just, just shooting bullets. it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Heat seeker, which is like, you know, guided missiles or like guided bullets, right? Like heat seeking bullets, uh, also known as hotshot. Uh, strong hmm. influence on Rogue Trader and, uh, and 40K, by the way. So I think that might actually be where the term came from. Uh, he also has ricochet bullets, which uh, can literally like bounce off walls and shoot somebody in the back of the head. Um, Incendiary bullets, which are basically napalm rounds, armor piercing, which is good against you know, armor, golems, robots, that sort of thing, uh, and then high explosive rounds, which really don't need any explanation. So, maneuvers, uh, heat seeker. We're gonna we'll get that from Paladin. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, ricochet, precision attack. So that lets you add your superiority die after you see the result. So yes, you did shoot past the target but you hit a wall and it bounced back to the target and that still counts <laughs> intentionally it was intentional <laughs> exactly for incendiary rounds uh you will take menacing attack uh that lets you add the, the superior superiority die to damage uh and then force a wisdom save versus frightened because obviously napalm like it, it kills you slowly right but mm -hmm. what it really does is cause you to panic and that's frightened all right armor piercing Paladin Smite. Okay, yep. <laughs> Checks out. <laughs> Might as well keep it coming. Uh, high explosives? Paladin Smite plus Trip Attack, because that one knocks you on your, off your feet. Uh, <laughs> okay. that, that, that throws the maximum <laughs> amount of damage, because that's your Smite, plus you're adding the die from your, your superiority die, and then you make a strength save or knock the target prone. I see, I see. Okay, all right, all right. I'm on board. And then let, let's talk about Heat Seeker. Okay, so Heatseeker, uh, Paladin, uh, Oath of Conquest Paladin gets the Channel Divinity Guided Strike. It gives you plus 10 to an attack. I don't see how that isn't Heatseeking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that just seems, like, too obvious, right? And obviously, like, if you had Heatseeking rounds, like, all over the place, like, you would never not use those. So it must be a limited resource within Lawgiver. And so Channel Divinity, you know, a couple times a day, I think that makes sense. Okay, so back to maneuvers. You'll also take commanding presence, which lets you add your die roll to an intimidation or persuasion check. Uh, you'll take ambush, which, yeah, I mean, obviously, Judge Dredd's not stealthy, but you can add your die to an initiative roll, which, you know, perps never see it coming <laughs> when he pulls Lawgiver and executes them. Judge, jury, executioner. I mean, what else do you need? And then you got three more. You have a lot of options. I, I am actually so happy that relatively recently we've gotten all of these other maneuvers that interact with, like, interface with skill checks because you don't just have battle masters who are, you know, stuck 
tripping yet again or, you know, hoping to miss so that you can use precision attack. <laughs> right. <laughs> At this point, you want to take the, the normal good stuff that works with ranged weapons because <laughs> obviously you want it to be possible to use with Lawgiver. Um, so Commander Strike lets an ally uh, attack uh, or, uh, instead of taking one of your attacks. Um, disarming attack to knock a weapon out of a target's hand. I think that just fits as a, as a judge. Uh, parry, rally, repost. So, you know, <laughs> reduce an attack, uh, gain some hit points, or get an ally to gain some hit points, and then uh, make, it, make an attack in response. So as a paladin, uh, he gets lay on hands. He gets divine sense to, I guess, locate celestial fiends and undead who, what, are against the law? Who need to be judged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, smites, obviously, and a fighting style. Mm, what do you like? Uh, well, paladin uh, options suck, mostly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Especially if you intend to wield a pistol named Lawgiver. So we're going to go with defense. Uh, gives you plus one to AC. You've got giant pauldrons and uh, and a helmet half covering your face. So I feel like that's pretty good defense. Uh, immune to disease as well. And then Oath of Conquest gets some really nice spells. Uh, hold person. Spiritual weapon. The channel divinity forces a wisdom save versus frighten for a minute, and then the aforementioned guided strike. Yeah, I like uh your your channel divinity, the the wisdom save versus frighten, just that base ability. Like that's just shouting, "I am the law," right? Like that is a judge <laughs> walking in the room, and now everybody scatters because like nobody is innocent in Mega City One. Like that, it's that's why it's a dystopian future. <laughs> it looks like you're making use of a lot of feats. Uh, yeah, we're going to go for six ASIs, which is why we're going to take 12 levels of Battlemaster next. <laughs> um, so but you'll, you'll get two ASIs from, uh, from the remainder of Paladin as well, but let's just kind of cover those in, in total. So uh, the, the two options here are Crossbow Expert um, or Gunner. So depending on whether Lawgiver will be a hand crossbow, which is more of a fantasy setting, or Gunner, which is technically available um from tasha's cauldron of everything then you could have an actual firearm um both of them give you uh the ability to ignore disadvantage for shooting when you're engaged in melee uh, and you could ignore the reload property of the respective weapon crossbow expert lets you uh make an attack with a hand crossbow as a bonus action whenever you make an attack with a one-handed weapon uh while gunner just gives you plus one dex so Either one. Uh, your, your general move here is going to be using your day stick or your boot knife as your main weapon. Probably going to be a rapier um, in one hand and then use lawgiver in the other. Uh, you did mention a motorcycle, so I'm guessing maybe we take mounted combatant. Yeah, you take mounted combatant so that you can name your horse lawmaster and, you know. And also stay on it. Stay on it, uh, yeah. keep it alive. Uh, one interesting thing about Lawmaster in canon is that it has advanced AI, so it can think for itself. So, hey, that's a horse. <laughs> uh, and then after that, you just want to use your ASIs to max your decks and then max your either your con or your charisma. All right, so you're obviously getting extra attack. You get know your enemy with one minute of observation. Uh, you get your opponent's combat stats, uh, which is very important for someone who's about to execute someone who may or may not be guilty true you get uh, doesn't tell you if they're guilty does tell you if you'll kill them no no their combat stats say guilty or not guilty sure yeah uh indomitable lets you reroll a failed save and then at level 11 uh you get the your third extra attack 
Uh, then we'll take eight levels of Paladin. So you'll get an ASI, you'll get an extra attack, which uh, we've already talked about the ASI. Obviously, the extra attack doesn't stack. But at level six in Paladin, you get Aura of Protection. That lets you add your Charisma saves uh, it to or, or, you know allies within 10 feet. So that's just a nice defensive bonus. And then what we're here for at level seven is Aura of Conquest. So frightened creatures within 10 feet of you have a speed of zero, and also take three psychic damage per turn. <laughs> We're not really here for the psychic damage, but I do think that's flavorful. What we really like is a speed of zero, because what that lets you do is a sequence of three attacks. So whether this is a melee weapon and Lawgiver, or this is just three attacks with Lawgiver, I don't care. Uh, first of all, tripping attack. Now they're prone. Second of all, menacing attack with advantage, because they're prone. Now they're feared. Then you walk to within 10 feet of them, or stay where you are if you're in melee, uh, triggering Aura of Conquest. Now their speed is zero. They are effectively grappled prone until the end of your next turn. Nothing they can do allows them to gain movement speed or stand up. So everyone can enjoy advantage against your prone target uh, and just wail on them while they're stuck on the ground. Right, because in order to stand up, you have to spend half your movement. Which is, which zero. is zero. Yep. Yes. Uh, what I like about this, what makes this so insidious, Ishin, is that each step along this journey looks so incremental that none of them could possibly be worth wasting a legendary safe, right? <laughs> it's not until that aura really procs that you realize, oh, I up. <laughs> <laughs> right, when the final piece of the combo kicks in. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, it's the Exodia comes together and now you've won the game. Uh, so I feel like you will trick some dm at some point with this combo all you have to do is get to level 20 and it's it's level 19 and it's gonna be great <laughs> except for gms who listen to this show you won't get tricked by your level 19 player exactly <laughs> who's bringing a melee build <laughs> exactly and can't fly <laughs> uh all right before we wrap up let's take a moment and thank our patreon supporters your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every week and supporters at any level get access to our Plot Hook of the Week bonus content. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our awards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about endearing villains. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building Carmen San Diego. Well, that's it for episode 309 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 